evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Look, if you're not interested in analysis, you're interested in music, move on, please. Don't listen to the Anarchist World This Week. If you're interested in analysis, you won't hear anywhere else. Well, keep listening. If you agree, you agree. And if you disagree, you disagree. At least we'll get the neurons working. You know, if you're a a devotee of social media, the virtual world, the legacy media, the government guild at ABC, the corporate-owned media, well, this is one way to blow those cobwebs away. You wonder what anarchism is all about? It's not what everybody thinks it is or tells you it is, that it's all about chaos. It's very simple. Now, as human beings, we're told we're born with original sin. We're bad, bad, bad people. And we need rulers, both in the sky and on the ground, to ensure we don't rape, murder and assault each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, anarchism is a very simple concept. It's about creating society without rulers. Because if you look at the situation between Russia and Ukraine currently, you can see what happens when rulers have extraordinary amounts of power and can mobilise tens of thousands of people to do their bidding. So anarchism is about breaking down hierarchy. It's about creating a society without rulers because it's rulers, people with centralised power and who have a lot of wealth, who are in a position to make the lives of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people, a misery. So the anarchist struggles for the last, since human beings, you know, started walking on the face of the planet, was the struggle to create societies which are able to govern themselves without the need of rulers. So anarchism, very simple concept. We're against the centralisation of power and wealth. How that occurs... The tactics that are used are always up for debate and flux, as we say, but the end point is the same. It's about creating society without rulers, based on the active participation of those who make those decisions and the common use of resources. Simple concepts, nothing radical about it. I mean, what is radical to me is the creation of sovereign nation states with standing armies who can then you know, invade other sovereign nation states with standing armies and battle each other for uh, resources or nationality or racial superiority. I mean, that's what's ludicrous, totally ludicrous. All right. Now, I'm going to concentrate on the election because Mr Morrison's going to uh, obviously um, call the election this weekend. He hasn't got much time. 
as you saw, the uh, Court of Appeal uh, accepted that the Liberal Party problems are Liberal Party problems, nothing to do with the courts, and the fact that they, uh, him and uh, the Premier of uh, New South Wales, uh, picked, hand-picked 18 candidates for federal seats in New South Wales, well, that's the party's problem. So now that that's out of the way, he's in a position to call the election. Obviously, he'll go to the Governor-General in the next few days because the election has to be held, constitutionally, has to be held by the 21st of May. So let's look at the strategies of the Liberal National Party because a lot of people think they're on the ropes, they're out, they're finished. Well, they're not. They're not on the ropes. They're not out. They're dancing. They're dancing around. They're doing a Muhammad Ali all right? They're not. Just remember the situation three years ago. Everybody thought they were on the ropes and out. But I think a good way to look at the situation is to try to understand the thinking, their thinking as far as re-election is concerned. Now, Mr Morris and the Liberal National Party have one secret weapon, a massive secret weapon, and that's the lapsed radicals of the yesteryear. My crew, all those radicals I rubbed shoulders with as a young person in the 1960s and 1970s, 99.9% have now become incorporated into the system. Many of them had good public service jobs, many of them have good corporate, have had good corporate jobs and now they're reaching the end of their working life and they want to clutch their superannuation to their bosom. Because now is the promised time, the promised land, when supposedly they're going to have a great life. So there are a lot of lapsed radicals in positions of authority in this country. Many lapsed radicals who have forgotten where they've come from, who have forgotten the ideas they had, who are the ones that continue to vote for the Liberal National Party. And it's interesting that as far as the over-55s are concerned in this country... At the last federal election, around 65% voted for the Liberal National Party. And why did I vote for the Liberal National Party? They voted for the Liberal National Party because the Liberal National Party had policies which suited their financial position. Negative gearing, superannuation, franking credits. That's what it's all about. We have an ageing population which has been thoroughly incalculated with private investment for private profit ideology. We have an ideologically driven older population which somehow thinks that the only way for them to survive is for them to hold on to that little bit of money they've been able to uh, acquire through good means and bad means. So you've got the lapsed radicals. They're out there. Hundreds of thousands of them in their 60s and 70s and 80s, who had great ideas 50 years ago, but today are part and parcel of the system. The other thing we need to think about is class in Australia, and we need to update our thinking about class. And I've spoken about this before, but I'll speak about it again, because I think it's very important, because a lot of people still think about class in Australia as in terms of traditional structures, you know, working class, ruling class, lumper proletariat, the usual shit, all right? Now, we need to be realistic about class in Australia in the 21st century because things change. 
because some old bloke in some library said this is the way it was 200 years ago. It doesn't mean it's the way it is in the 21st century. Class. In a capitalist economy, one based on private investment for private profit is dependent on disposable income. Not the type of work you do or don't do, but how much disposable income you have in your pocket at the end of the day to take advantage of this country's investment-friendly laws, negative gearing, superannuation laws, franking credits, corporate welfare. That's right, corporate welfare, and the list goes on and on. So how do I divide class? Now, you may agree, you may disagree, but what I try to do in the anarchist world this week is simplify matters. Everybody tells you everything is so complex. There's no way you can, you know, analyse anything, that we've got to sit back and let the experts sort it out. Well, it's not like that. Class in Australia is a good indication of how people, who they're going to support. Because we don't have a history in this country of people really accepting that class is a constant feature of our society. We like to think of ourselves as a class-less society, a society where everybody starts on the same starting line. The reality is, as you know, there are some people who start 50 metres in front of the starting line of life and some people that start 50 metres behind the starting line. And sometimes those who start in front of the starting line fall over, but most of them go through, and occasionally somebody who starts 50 metres behind the starting line you know, becomes a celebrity, a CEO. So class. I look at class in... I divide class in Australia in four ways. There's the 1%. And I'm not talking about outlaw bikey gangs. I'm talking about the 1% that has done really, 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 really well from the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation agenda, which has been woven into this country's laws over the last 40 to 50 years by both Liberal National and Labor parties. And I'm talking about those people who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication the billionaires and the millionaires, not the self-made men and women, we're told they're self-made. People have made their money from exploiting other people's labour or being given the key to the Treasury by being given by the government access to this country's resources and governments allow them to enrich themselves the, at the, um, you know, in, in terms of at the expense of other people tongue-tied there at the expense of other people. So you've got the 1%. A small number, influential number, powerful number. They're so powerful that they determine the parliamentary agenda. It's not a matter of, you know, touching somebody on the shoulder and saying, Mr Prime Minister, you need to do this. It's a matter of having the power at hand to derail attempts to try to redistribute wealth in this country. So you've got the 1%. Now, I think most of us would agree with that. The next class is a new class that has developed 
over the last, you know, few decades. It's grown over the last 40 years because of the policies that have been enshrined in legislation, policies which have outlawed unions, policies which have made corporate welfare uh, a significant part of this country's economy, policies which have privatised most um, essential services in this country. And this is the investment class. Now, about 8% of Australians have enough disposable income at the end of the day. And what I mean by disposable income, once you've paid all your bills, your rent, your mortgage, your food, your electricity, your gas, your holidays, blah, 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 your haircuts, you've got all this money left. So we have leg- we have a, a legislative framework which rewards people who've got disposable income. So about 8% of Australians have a second home, which is negatively geared. About 8% of Australians outside their superannuation funds have stocks and shares, and the list goes on and on. So this is the investment class. Now, you don't have to be a particular profession to be part of the investment class. There are many people in blue-collar industries, traditional blue-collar industries, mining, construction, the list goes on and on, who are now part of the investment class. And there are many people in service industries who have trouble paying their debts, and many professionals and academics who at the end of the week or the end of the month don't have disposable income to invest. So looking at people in a traditional way, you know, he's white-collar, he's blue-collar, he's working-class, he's ruling-class, he's bourgeoisie, is a waste of time because it doesn't really reflect the reality. The reality is the greatest beneficiaries outside the 1% have been the 8% of Australians, senior public servants, uh, some tradespeople, people in construction. I mean, they may work with their hands, they may work with their brains, doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, whether you're part of the investment class or not depends on disposable income. Then you've got the great bulk of Australians, about, so what's that, it's about, let's say 10% are part of the investment class and the 1% is, all right, around 10%. Then you've got about 60% of Australians, your average person. Now, these people may be doctors, they may be lawyers, they may work on assembly lines, they may be in the service industries, they may work in aged care, they may work in hospitality, and the list goes on and on. But what joins them together, what makes them a class, is the fact that at the end of the week there is no money left over to invest. Everything they earn goes into taxation, mortgage, rent, food, childcare fees, fees to send kids to public, you know, to public schools as well as, and the list goes on and on. So at the end of the week, there is no money left over to invest. This is the great bulk of Australians. Then you have the 30 to 33% of Australians are on social security benefits. 
And I'm talking about people on disability pensions, old age pensions, uh, single parents benefits. And over the last 40 years, we've seen concerted efforts to decrease this number through superannuation, so you don't have to pay them old age pensions, through making it more and more difficult to receive a disability support pension, through forcing people who are supposedly have the, the, the most important job in the world, that's looking after children, back into the workforce, into poorly paid um, in work once their kids, I think, reach the age of eight. So we'll go through it again because this gives us an idea of why the Liberal National Party is not on the ropes. So you've got the one percenters, you've got the nine to t- around eight to ten percent are part of the investment class, then you've got the great majority of people, about fifty percent or sixty six yeah, sixty percent who are in the workforce but just make enough to pay their bills, and then you've got people on social security benefits. So if you look at the budget, it wasn't just a matter of providing money, a little bit of money to people in Social Security benefits, a little bit of money, tax release, you know, for the uh, 60%, you know, what I describe as the working class, who don't have any uh, money to invest. But it was about much, much more than that. We've seen a state member of the Liberal Party of New South Wales Resigned because of the politicisation of disaster relief. Can you think of anything more disgusting than organising disaster relief in such a way as to be directed at conservative-held seats and marginal seats and those people who vote for the opposition are excluded to a significant degree? But that's another story. So getting back, to the budget. Now, if you looked at the budget very carefully, you would notice that $2.5 billion was allocated for the trades and $45 million for aged care in terms of aged care, educating aged care staff. $2.5 billion for tradies, $45 million for aged care staff. And you know why? Because obviously many tradies are now part of the investment class or aspire, you know, this aspirational voter, aspire to be part of the investment class. And the Liberal National Party knows that a significant uh, support base comes from people with disposable income. So they create policies and enshrine policies in legislation which benefit them at the expense of people on social security benefits. So think about it. So we've got the lapsed radicals who are clutching their superannuation to their chest, you know, looking at the stock markets, ups and downs every day, wondering whether they're going to have that dream retirement or whether they're going to lose it all in some type of crash overnight, who are so frightened, they continue to vote in droves for the Liberal National Party. Then you've got people who are traditionally used to be fought as Labor voters, 
We're now doing so well and in a significant number of cases due to trade union activity who now have shifted their alliance to the Liberal National Party because they see themselves as individual contractors. Then you've got everybody else. Think about it. So the Morrison government has a winning trifecta. Negative gearing, franking credits and superannuation. The winning trifecta. Look, I knew the game was almost up, and the keyword was almost up about three years ago when I was sitting at a cafe in Coburg having a, a coffee, and there were two middle-aged blokes in high-vis who'd just come up, come in for a coffee, mud-splattered boots, calloused hands, and what were they talking about? Were they talking about the races? Nah. Were they talking about their family? Nah. They were talking about their investment portfolio. They're financial advisors. That's what they were talking about. So to a significant degree, the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, revolution has revolutionised our society, revolutionised Australian society. It has led people to believe that the only way to, to prosper in our society is through individual gain, not collective action. Individual gain. And if people are left behind, that's their problem. And while we continue to support political parties, both Liberal National and Labor, that continue to beat the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation drum, the gaps that are now appearing in our society will continue to widen. And this will lead, as you know, to dislocation, violence, and the list goes on and on. Because ultimately... We're all human. Ultimately, we all desire some personal security. Ultimately, we all wish to have access to the Commonwealth. Ultimately, we wish to be able to participate in what's going on around us. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Let's move on. Let's change track because I'm sure you're a bit bored by now. Regime change in the Solomon Islands. There's a little bit of a battle brewing next to the Australian mainland. And I noticed the United States government, well, actually a military personnel, naval man, have entered the fray. Now, a lot of people were a bit surprised a few weeks ago when Australian uh, police and soldiers were deployed to the Solomon Islands to restore order. And most of us were really not aware of the reasons. We were kind of told this is an ethnic dispute. It's an ethnic dispute between the two main islands. The same thing that happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Ethnic dispute. Now, in the Solomon Islands, we are seeing a microcosm of what's happening in the rest of the world. 
has the imperial powers, the United States of America, China and Russia, attempt to divide the world amongst them. And the Solomon Island government did something which was totally unforgivable in the eyes of Australia and the United States. They stopped supporting Taiwan and changed their allegiance to China, mainland China. Obviously, they've got their reasons. Supposedly, it's an independent, sovereign nation-state. Obviously, they've made some deals with the Chinese government regarding their economic future because Australia basically left the area. I mean, let's not forget all the hysteria regarding foreign aid. People forgetting that foreign aid in our part of the world is a, a way of actually maintaining and interacting with the communities around us. So what happened over the last two years as a result of that change in allegiance by the Solomon Island government is that the United States started to funnel millions of dollars into the opposition's coffers in an attempt to influence the political situation in the Solomon Islands. And the ensuing riots we saw a few weeks ago were not about ethnic differences. They were about policies revolving around regime change. The United States wanted to change the regime in the Solomon Islands. And you can do it through direct military intervention, as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, or you can do it by manipulating the people on the ground, by using financial incentives. Now, obviously, the Solomon Islands government got such a fright that they've now jumped into the Chinese camp. And the United States has shown increasing interest, and in Australia, and over the last two weeks we've heard increasingly... Uh, unbelievable stories about China wanting to establish a base in the Solomon Islands. Let's not forget that it becomes, when it comes to foreign military bases outside a sovereign nation state's borders, the United States have a, has over 800 bases, military bases, in over 72 countries around the world. Russia has 21, that's right, and China has one in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, one naval base. So obviously there's a huge political program for regime change in the Solomon Islands. And the dislocation we've seen and the anger we've seen and the riots we've seen to a significant degree have been fomented aided and abetted the United States and to a lesser degree Australia. Let's not forget what happened in Indonesia in the 1960s when over a million, about 1.5 million people were massacred in the period of six weeks and the Sukarno dictatorship brought Indonesia back into the United States camp. So when there's a Cold War, regime change is always on the agenda.
Now, many people still believe that the dismissal of the Whitlam led Labor government was all about regime change because of Australia's increasingly independent foreign policy initiatives in the 1970s, which revolved around removing United States bases in Australia. Now, the Whitlam Labor government came to a sticky end. We saw all the media basically, um, you know, turn against the government of the day. One of the most reformist governments since... The most reformist government since Federation. If you look at most of the reforms of the Whitlam-led Labor government, they were reforms which empowered people, which broke down hierarchy. There were reforms in the air regarding mineral resources going back into the national agenda. There were reforms in the air regarding a universal healthcare system, Medibank and its current um, cousin, Medicare. There were reforms regarding divorce. There were social reforms. There were reforms which meant that people like me could articulate ideas publicly before the advent of social media where everything came from the legacy media, the introduction of community radio licences and community radio stations across Australia in the 1970s were directly linked to the reforms, the legislation which was passed by the Whitlam-led Labor government to break the monopoly the legacy media had in this country. There were reforms regarding divorce, reforms regarding single parents. You wouldn't believe it. Single mothers were not entitled to anything. They were being punished, you know, before, you know, the Whitlam-led Labor government. There were reforms regarding Australia's military intervention overseas. So there were many reforms on the agenda. There were even reforms about ASIO. ASIO was more interested in that particular period of time in, you know, annoying socialists and anarchists and, so, and, and communists and actually looking at the real terrorists who were sletting off bombs around this country, Croatian nationalists, and the list goes on and on. So there were many reforms in the wing, but the reforms which concerned them the most is the reforms which have occurred in the Solomon Islands, reforms about removing the United States from those areas. So keep your eyes out on the Solomon Islands because regime change is in the wind. And if they can't do regime change through economic pressure, they will do it through direct intervention. And we will be the people who will be responsible for that intervention. You listen to the Atticus World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Let's move on. Look, if you're interested in these ideas, you can go to a few Facebook pages, Toscano for the Public, Joseph Toscano, info, info, uh, pipsy.net, anarchismedia.org, YouTube channels, public interest before corporate interest, the list goes on and on. I mean, there's lots of stuff out there on the net. All right. When is a war crime not a war crime? Interesting, isn't it? When is a war crime not a war crime? 
Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that ill-disciplined Russian soldiers were responsible for the murder and rape of civilians in the parts of the Ukraines they are now retreating from. I have no doubt whatsoever. He didn't call it a war crime, or an alleged war crime. But I'm a little bit concerned. When is a war crime not a war crime? Currently there are significant allegations regarding a number of Australian troops in Afghanistan. And the government of the day has done everything it can to try to minimise the exposure of alleged war crimes by Australian troops in Afghanistan. Then we have the situation in Yemen. The situation in Yemen has been going on now for a number of years. (coughs) And the House of Saudi, in a proxy war against Iran, funded and supported the United States of America has been laying the country to waste. Laying the country to wastes. Hospitals being bombed, civilians being killed, starvation being used as a weapon to subdue the opposition, disease being used as a weapon, hundreds, tens of thousands of people have now got communicable diseases because of the breakdown in infrastructure because of the war there but not one word not one word about war crimes in Yemen is that because the struggle in Yemen is a struggle that goes against United States interests hmm I mean, a war crime is a war crime. A human being is a human being. A dead human being is a dead human being. Let's look at the situation. I mean, there are many situations we can look at. We're looking at Yemen. Let's look at the situation in the House of Saudi, which controls the Arabian Peninsula. One particular clan, a feudal monarchy with an evil agenda, and I I use the word sparingly, Apologise to any um, warlocks out there. I mean, they've got away with things that no other country on earth would ever get away with. And they continue to be supported by the West because they have access, obviously, to oil, which is still needed, irrespective of a climate emergency or no climate emergency. Is that a war crime? What happened in Iraq? Was that a war crime? What happened in Cambodia? Laos? Vietnam? Was that a war crime? Obviously it's not a war crime. As I said before, there are good nuclear weapons and bad nuclear weapons. The good nuclear weapons are those that are on our side and the bad ones are on the other side, obviously. At the end of the Second World War, maybe you can justify the nuclear annihilation of 60 to 80,000 people in one hit in one nuclear bomb in Hiroshima to bring the war to an end. But can you justify the 
nuclear weapon used on Nagasaki two to three days later, which again caused massive civilian casualties. Is that a war crime? So when is a war crime not a war crime? It seems that a war crime is not a war crime when it doesn't suit our master's political agendas. It doesn't suit. So therefore it's not a war crime, is it? It's just something that happens. It's collateral damage, all right? Let's get it right. If it's our side, the US imperialist or whatever, the Russian imperialist or the Chinese imperialist side, it's collateral damage. Ultimately, a war crime is a war crime is a war crime. Irrespective of who's responsible for it, irrespective of their, the political dilemma, because, you see, modern warfare is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing, as we see in the Ukraine. The major people who suffer in modern warfare, and we've seen that since the Spanish Revolution in '36, when indiscriminate use of modern arms were used, they're used against the civilian population. 90 to 95% of people who died in Iraq, 90 to 95% of people who died in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Afghanistan are civilians. Not the well-armed soldiers who are protected, but civilians. Civilian casualties are the real war crime. And civilian casualties occur in every theatre of war. To point at one particular evil situation and say that is a war crime and to shrug your shoulders and say, oh, that's collateral damage, I think highlights the hypocrisy of living in the 21st century uh, in uh, this country. So something to think about. Uh, obviously, I didn't mention the situation between Palestine and Israel. Was, was it a war crime a few years ago when over 2,500 civilians were killed in a few days in the world's largest prison in Gaza in that dispute? Was that a war crime or was that just collateral damage because they were Palestinians? Hmm? Think about it. As I said before, I'm against imperialism. I don't care if it's Chinese imperialism. I don't care if it's Russian imperialism. I don't care if it's US imperialism. I'm not going to put my flag at the back of their carriage. Imperialism is imperialism is imperialism. A war crime is a war crime is a war crime. Think about it. Three million people dead in Vietnam during the United States occupation of Vietnam. Most of them civilians. The rise and rise of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, Cambodia, a direct result of Kissinger's bomb them back to the Stone Age philosophy, which was used in the 70s and 60s in that particular war zone. Millions dead. Thousands still maimed by the millions of mines which were laid in so-called neutral countries. Is that a war crime? I could go on and on. Think about it. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia. 
by the Community Radio Network. Well, the failure of negative gearing to stimulate the housing market. You like that? We were told a number of years ago when negative gearing was... A number of decades ago when negative gearing was introduced that negative gearing was introduced to encourage investment in the housing market to provide low-cost accommodation to people. What a load of crap. What a load of total garbage. Negative gearing has been all about enriching those with disposable income at the expense of the rest of the community. It hasn't stimulated the housing market in terms of providing accommodation for people. All it's done is basically driven up the prices of housing. Driven it up. For example, if you bought a house in 1974 and you sell it now in 2022, so what's that, nearly 50 years ago, 26, 20, yeah, nearly 50 years ago, housing prices have increased, and it's the same house, 40 times over. Something that was worth 40000 would now be worth about $1.2, million, $1.3 Not because anything has changed in terms of the in terms of the house, not because it's got gold plated plumbing, but because of the government policies which have turned housing into an investment. Housing is all about investing. At least forty percent of houses that are sold and bought every week are bought by investors. And this money in the housing market artificially elevates prices. Well, it's very good for people who've got their foot in the market, but it's not very good for all those younger people who've got no foot in the market or ever any opportunity, irrespective of so-called government policies regarding housing. It's a difficult situation to find yourself in on a regular basis. And that's why I've always been a big advocate for public housing. That's right. Public housing, everybody's business. And I'll go through it again and again and again and again. Because you need, if you live in a capitalist society, you need to introduce competition. We're told we live in a competitive society. We don't live in a competitive society. We live in a society which is dominated by a handful of corporations in every major field of activity. Whether it's selling food, whether it's manufacturing, you go into a shopping centre in Darwin, you go to a shopping centre in Melbourne, you go to a shopping centre in Perth, and what's similar about them all, not, not just the air conditioning, but the fact it's the same brands over and over and over and over again. They dominate the marketplace, the same in the housing market. We have a market which is totally privatised, and those of us who live in Victoria live in the worst situation as far as privatisation of housing is concerned. If you want competition in the marketplace, you need to increase public housing stock. Public housing stock. Not affordable housing, communal housing, social housing, but public 
housing stock. That is the only way, the one and only way to increase competition. But what all the state governments are doing, especially the Victorian government, which I'm familiar with, they are doing everything they can to sell off public housing stock, give it away to the community housing sector, provide guarantees for the private sector to provide so-called affordable housing. Even the public-private partnerships that have been created to provide so-called public housing, where public land is given to a private sector, 90% of the homes that are, or units that are built belong to the private the developer, 10% belong to the public sector. In 10 years' time, those 10% that belong to the public sector revert, the ownership reverts back to the private provider. That's the type of housing policies we have. There is no competition in the marketplace, none whatsoever. Nil, zilch, nothing. Think about it. Now, last but not least, a little bit of a self-serving segment. Let's be realistic. Now, I have no illusions. I've been around long enough to understand how few people in this country think the way our listeners think. I mean, we may have a small group of listeners, but at least they think. They think outside the box. They're looking for alternatives. I have no illusion regarding the parliamentary process. Because in order to get anywhere as far as the parliamentary process is concerned which the divided Australia party has highlighted, is the fact that you need lots and lots and lots and lots of cash to have any chance in an electoral contest. No wonder we have philanthropists stepping up and saying, look, we need to do something about climate change. We're going to bankroll certain independent candidates to try to roll certain government members. A little bit, you know a little bit against the concept of the climate emergency. The reality is there's going to be very few cats who are going to be set among the parliamentary pigeons in this federal election. Now, after a lot of thought, I've decided, and again, most likely most people think I'm an idiot, but I've decided to stand as an independent Victorian Senate candidate. Why? Do I think I'll be elected? No, I'm not that stupid. Do I think we will obtain some publicity in the legacy media or social media? I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, what we have is a presidential election. It's about Morrison and Albanese. You've got to choose one or the other. What a load of bullshit. So why am I standing? Well, I'm standing because there are specific policies which I am interested in in raising amongst people. And I'm sick and tired of the negativity, defeatism amongst so many Australians who shrug their shoulders and say, you can't fight City Hall. You may not be able to fight City Hall, but you may be able to highlight their stupidity and ignorance. So that's why I'm standing. 
Now, there are a few problems when you stand because people think, oh, you just say, oh, I'm going to think. Well, the first problem I've got is that I need about 120 people on the Victorian electoral roll to nominate me, okay? Now, the election will most likely be called this weekend, so I'll be able to start um, trying to obtain the necessary numbers next week. So, in order to make things easy, because you just can't, you can't do it on the net, in order to make things easy, I'm encouraging people to come here to 3CR next Wednesday, which is the 13th, between 1pm and 3pm. I'll be here. I'll be at the front door, you know, looking at the sky, looking at my boots, looking at the footpath, hoping you'll turn up to sign the nomination forms. That's the first thing. Then at about 3.30, I'll be down at Yarraville Station in Melbourne. From about 3.30 to about maybe 5, down at Yarraville Station in Melbourne. Hopefully people who live in that part of the city who have been great supporters of uh, public interest before corporate interest will turn up and sign the nomination forms. And then that evening, at La Poquetta's at Carlton North in uh, Raftdown Street. I'll be there for dinner from 6 to 9pm, obviously. If you can, just, you can just turn up and do the nomination forms and go home or you can have dinner and a coffee or something if you wish. All right? Now, next Thursday, which is the... What's that? That's the 14th. I'll be on the steps of Parliament House between midday and 1pm, so on the public uh, public housing everybody's business campaign so you can come along and sign the nomination forms then lunch at the uh, Paramount uh, Food Hall corner of Exhibition and Little Burke Street between 1.30 and 2.30 you can come along uh, and if you can't make that I'm going to be a real clown after that I'm going to go wander down to uh, Luna Park where the clown is and stand there for an hour or two, about an hour and a half from about 3 to about 4.30, uh, hoping that people who live in that area will come and uh, sign the nomination forms. Now, obviously, this is going to be a hard task. It's not easy. It will be a hard task, but we'll do our best. And with your support, I should be able to gather enough signatures to nominate. Now, I am not asking for your financial support. This is a campaign that it's going to be based on ideas, not bloody money. It'll cost me personally $2,000 to nominate, and yes, I won't get that money back because I won't get 4% of the vote. I know that. But at least we'll be able to talk about things that are important to us that could make a major change to the society. I mean, I know I keep saying it, 25 million people living on a continent with almost a million children living in poverty. Extraordinary. Billionaires, well, people can't even get a public housing gig. They've got to wait 10, 20 years to get a public housing gig unless they're in a dire emergency. Money wasted, hand over fit, over fist. Hand over fist, money wasted. Government giving money to the private sector to provide so-called services to the community, whether it's Social Security, whether it's NDIS whether it's the aged care, and the list goes on and on and on. The amount of public money, which is... So what are the basic things I'm interested in? Universal basic income, 
fund it with a 1% financial transaction tax, increase public housing stock, fund it by using stamp duty revenue to build public housing stock, better public health, public education, 1% stock market uh, transfer tax. You can raise 30 to $40 billion a year. That goes a long way. Having a national disaster centre with regional hubs, 50 regional hubs around the country to assist people during disaster situations, disasters which will increase as the climate emergency becomes more and more an issue. The key is that ultimately the type of society that we live in depends on you. You can continue to complain. Nobody's going to listen. They may have all these committees set up for you to listen, but ultimately they won't listen. You can, you know, cry. If you're lucky, you'll get a handkerchief or these days a tissue. But ultimately the type of society you will create or we will create is to a significant degree due to us getting off our butt and being active. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week. Uh, Most of that information regarding where I'll be next Wednesday and Thursday will be up on the net and hopefully by the end of the week there'll be many more um, places I'll be because I'm trying to uh, go to as many places as possible the next week, uh, starting next week, uh, in order to uh, collect the necessary signatures. As I said before, I don't want any money. This is a campaign that's going to be based on ideas, not financial support. So... If you want to nominate, come along, look at the Facebook page, Toscano for the Public, Joseph Toscano, the website, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. You want to explore some of these ideas, go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Go to the website, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You want to uh, nominate me? Give me a call on zero four three nine three nine five four eight nine. Organise a Good Friday barbecue. Get your friends. The more, the merrier. Who knows? Give us a ring zero four three nine three nine five four eight nine. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. And yes, you can still write. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Without 3CR, without the Community Radio Network, we wouldn't be in a position to actually set the cat among the parliamentary pigeons at the next federal election, which will be held on the 21st of May. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.